1: Welcome to Real GM Radio. I'm Daniel we're your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. Uh, this is another continuation of the Eliminated series, where I go in-depth on a specific team with somebody who follows them closely, and this episode centers on the Philadelphia 76ers. And partially because of your suggestions on Twitter, and I appreciate that, and also because I was familiar with his work, I connected with Derek Bodner, who writes for Liberty Ballers, Draft Express, and he just started a relationship with 97.3 FM, Which is a local radio station there, and congratulate him on that. And we talked about the Sixers, and they're in a really fascinating position because of how much variance they have. They have very few players now that will likely be on their roster a couple years from now, but they have a simply immense amount of assets between draft picks and cap space. So I wanted to talk with him. We hit both of those topics, and also what they're going to do with Thaddeus Young, and the general feel of how it actually is to deal with a team like this, and how it is for fans and for players alike, and. We had an interesting conversation on the human aspect of what's going on with that team. And I think you'll really enjoy it. Conversation runs about 45 minutes. I had a lot of fun talking to him. I'd been trying to get Derek on the show actually earlier, and it was really happy that it actually happened now. So I hope you enjoy it as much as I did recording it. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Thanks for having me. So the Sixers are in a really interesting position because of their kind of, I guess you could call it unusual circumstance, and a lot of that, to me, starts with just the way that they have so many guys on team options because of the way that Sam Hinkie structured contracts. How do you think that's going to generally shake out?
0: Yeah, well, like, like you said, you have guys like um, James Anderson, Elliot Williams, Henry Sims, Brandon Davies. Um, I think even Jarvis Barnardell has a, a team option or a, a non fully guaranteed contract contract for next year. And you're right, I think it's going into last offseason. The Sixers had just a, a huge amount of cap space, and in fact, a lot of the, a lot of the year people were wondering whether or not they would hit the salary cap floor, which is is mostly irrelevant. But uh, it just goes to show how little of that they spent. But what they use it on were young players, some of them who were highly touted. You know, like Elliot Williams was a first round pick. He was 22nd or so overall a few years back. Um, some of these guys who had a little bit of pedigree that didn't work out, Tony wrote in another first-round pick that they acquired in a trade. So he wanted to really give them a chance to evaluate them, get to know them as players, how they work, how well they'll listen to coaching and respond to coaching. Um, so this year was really a tryout for pretty much everyone on the team. And I think I think you're going to see a lot of, of shakeover. I think James Anderson is a guy who definitely could be back. Um, I think Hollis Thompson is a guy who, who came in, and he, you know he's one of the better three-point shooters in the league as a rookie. Um, I think they can probably find a role for him. Uh, Henry Sims really showed a lot last year. I think if you're looking at guys who could be back, I think those are probably the three names that have the best chance because they 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 look like they could fill a role in future years. But you're right, there's a a lot of a lot of unknowns right now. A lot that we'll find out in the coming months. But yeah, there's there's going to be a, there's sure to be a lot of roster turnover again this year.
1: Yeah, and I think that it'll be interesting to see if what Hinky did with this team will start a trend of similar contracts because when teams have the leverage to do it, it makes a ton of sense because even if you think about it compared to a rookie contract or first-round contract where they have to guarantee the or decide on the option years more than a year ahead of time, these ones, there's a much narrower time frame so they can see how the summer goes and everything like that before they make a decision on whether they want a certain guy back next year, which is a huge advantage tactically versus what a lot of other teams deal with with guys.
0: Yeah, no, and I think if you look at, at Sam Hinkie and the way he operates, he's, he's going to work out and interview just a ridiculous amount of players uh, coming up to this draft. And a lot of people look at it well, you have the, the third pick, you have the 10th pick. You know, why are you really focusing on guys who are, are looking to go 15, 20, 25 in the draft? And a lot of it is well, part of it's just so he's prepared in case somebody comes up with a trade offer that, you know, they, they can't turn down. But a lot of it's also just for future years. He wants to talk to these guys, get to know them, get a private workout, just get as much information as he can. So in future years, if an opportunity to bring up Elliott Williams comes up, he'll have that information so they can make a decision. So I think a lot of these are, are calculated moves that, you know, he, he liked this guy while he was in Houston. And I certainly think it's something he's going to do in, in the future. Now the question comes up whether or not they're going to use their cap space this coming year, and, and they should you know probably have about $25 million or so in cap space whether or not they're going to use that to try to find guys who they really have in their long-term plans or whether they're going to go through another year of, of signing guys at the minimum using their cap space like they did to acquire um, assets. Uh, you know, they, they they took on guys basically to, to acquire second-round picks in that process uh, and whether or not you know, Royce White, uh, obviously they, they use him to get, uh, I believe it was Furkan Aldemir, but they also use that to, to take on Eric Maynard so they can get an additional second-round pick. So it remains to be seen whether or not they're going to try to use their cap space to try to, you know, sign mainstays in, in free agency or, or just use that to try to acquire more assets and evaluate guys.
1: And the other big, if you want to call it, debuting asset for them is New Orleans Noel. And I had Noel as the number one pick, as the number one player in that class. Obviously, he missed the whole year and that was disappointing and all that. Have you heard anything about how close he is now to being, being ready to play?
0: Well, the the word now, the Sixers are going to be in both the Orlando Summer League and the Vegas Summer League, and the word now is that he's going to play in both of them. It sounds like he's ready to go. He was playing five-on-five with the team in practice for the last week or two when the season ended, so it looks like he's been ready to go. Uh, One thing they they did during the season, they really rebuilt his jump shot. From the ground up, he was shooting one-handed just to try to get the form down pretty much all year. So I think if, if they wanted to rush him, he may have been able to come back earlier, but I think they kind of want to take this season as a chance to rebuild that shot, break it down completely, and really build a base that he can work on. So I think athletically, I think rehab-wise, it all sounds like he's, he's good to go, and he's going to be playing in the summer league. He's going to be ready for training camp, and he's, he's good to go for next year.
1: So if they're developing a jump shot for him, obviously that's valuable for every position, but would that possibly lead to him playing a little bit of power forward eventually? Because that would be really interesting defensively.
0: Well, I think defensively he can can certainly play power forward. Uh, One of the things that I really liked about Noel last year when we were scouting him and leading up to the draft is the versatility he had defensively, whether that means popping out on a pick and roll, uh, hard trapping a a ball handler, defending a face-up four, Taking guys up in transition for a six eleven seven footer, he has just tremendous foot speed. He moves his feet really well, and he's he's just an overall tremendous athlete. It's not sometimes you look at his stats and you see the shot blocking, and you kind of assume that he might not be able to defend away from the hoop all that well. But he he definitely can, and it comes up a little bit in conversation with you know with Joel Embiid, who I don't really see being there when the Sixers pick at three. And if he is there when the Sixers pick at three, I assume there's a reason he's there medically, uh, and that would concern me a little bit. But it comes up a lot when you're talking about pairing him with with Joel Embiid and and a lot of conversations we as Sixers fans and media have, because while you don't necessarily want to pull New Noel away from the hoop defensively, it's certainly something he's capable of doing and capable of doing for for pretty long stretches. I I certainly think he could defend the four. Obviously, the question comes up with jump shooting, and and that's a big question with Noel and Embiid. Whether or not they're going to have enough, and you don't necessarily have to be a perimeter threat. You don't have the ball handling. You don't need three-point range, but 15, 17-foot range just so there's enough floor spacing so that Brett Brown can run his offense. And I, th- I think that's a question. He certainly looked better when I saw him shooting the basketball, shooting free throws, shooting standstill jump shots than he did back in Kentucky. But, I mean, we're, we're talking shooting alone with, you know, nobody running out on you. It, it, it's definitely a question mark.
1: And the other part of that that I always think about, and you can draw a parallel to Dwight and No. Marishik, except that those guys were more established. Is that as long as you have forty eight good minutes at center, it's not like you're gonna you need to play them together all that much. You can you know give them enough minutes to make sure that they both get enough playing time. But if it, if you know if it's only like five to ten minutes a game, then I think that would would work out relatively well for the Sixers because then if Thaddeus Young still on the team can use a guy like him, or if they draft a stretch four, which they very well might then that's an option as well.
0: Yeah, no, and if, if, I mean, even even if things work out and and Noel comes back healthy and they somehow Embiid falls at three and they draft Embiid and and his back's fine, I I wouldn't expect either of them to play too much more than 25 to 30 minutes a night, uh, considering where they are in their development. But then again, I I probably would have said the same thing about Michael Carter-Williams and and he came in and, and played major minutes and, the team's a little unique in that regard in that they're not necessarily making the biggest effort to win right now, so they're willing to let these young guys go through growing pains. So maybe they, they do that, but you're right. I think them playing together is probably only 15, 20 minutes a night, even if, if things work out. And If things work out in three to four years where you need them playing 30, 35 minutes a night, I mean, that, that that's a good position to be in. There's certainly no, no struggle to move athletic big men.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we haven't really seen that kind of thing with a young big in a long time. I mean, the Pistons could have done it with Greg Monroe, but they didn't. They kept all three, and it's going to be interesting. But we'll move on to what I think of as the big question with the Sixers, which is since they have the third pick, what do you estimate is their top three on their draft board, and would yours be different than what you think theirs is?
0: Well, it certainly sounds like Wiggins is at the top of their draft board. Chad Ford mentioned this earlier this week, that, that Wiggins is the guy that they've been targeting all year, and I've heard I've heard similar things. Uh, it also sounds like they're big fans of Embiid, but it doesn't necessarily seem like he will be. Like I said, if he's there at three, then I, I question why he's there at three, because it certainly looks like he is pretty good to a lock to go one or two if he's healthy. Now, the, the third pick or the third in their draft board is where it becomes, get a little bit more murky. We haven't heard a whole lot about their thoughts on Jabari Parker yet. You don't want to read too much into that, but if you look at who Sam Hinkie targets, he likes guys who have positional vers- uh, defensive versatility position-wise, guys who can defend multiple positions, guys who can switch if needed to. And that's not really something that would, would be uh, Jabari Parker's strength. In fact, rather than being able to defend multiple positions, he really can't defend any position, at least from what I've seen. So I'm, I'm not wondering how much that will dissuade them from from targeting him. And then you also have to look at Dante Exum, a guy who Brett Brown, coached his father, uh, knows really well. He never coached him directly, but he had him in camps uh, back when I think uh, Exum was on the U-17s. I think he practiced with with uh, the big club. So it's it's some, someone that Brett Brown has some definite familiarity with. You know, I think uh, you, Brett Brown's offense. One thing Dante Exum can do is he's, he's extremely quick. And he can get in the lane, and he's a good passer once he gets in the lane. I think a, a driving kick point guard is something that they would certainly have. Now the question obviously comes up whether or not he'd fit with Michael Carter-Williams. And that's really hard to project. I don't think there's much concern about having two ball handlers on the court. I think a lot of teams are going to that. Phoenix, obviously. Uh, Oklahoma City runs a lot of two-point guard sets. Even not necessarily point guards, but ball-dominant two guards like like in Houston— so I don't worry so much about the ball handling, having two ball handlers on the court. It's whether or not they're going to have the jump shot and the floor spacing to really, really coexist. And it's so hard right now because, I mean, you're looking at Dante Exum, and he's he's 18. Uh, he's, he's one of the youngest kids in the draft. So there's still a lot of room for growth right there. And I think a lot of people who have seen his jump shot, particularly a set shot, I think he has a little more work to do off the dribble. But I think a lot of people who have, have really looked at him think with repetition, that's something that can be improved upon. And if Brett Brown and Sam Hinkie and the coaching staff feels that way, I could see them potentially having him certainly in the, in the top four, maybe even above Jabari Parker. But uh, they're, they're a pretty quiet organization, and it's kind of hard to get a read on. But it certainly seems like Wiggins and Embiid are wanting to, and after that it's a little bit more murky.
1: If you were the general manager, knowing what you know now, what if it were your choice, who do you think you'd like for the Sixers if, if the top two were unavailable?
0: Well, a healthy Embiid is definitely one, and i I, I do like Andrew Wiggins. Um, I think you know, I think expectations were definitely a little bit too high. And he, he certainly – my expectations were probably that he would do a little bit more. But I, I think moving to the NBA uh, with more, the stricter hand-checking rules, the lack of zone defense rules, just the more floor spacing that you would have with the longer three-point line. And if he improves that ball handling, I think, I think he has a, a tremendous amount of growth ahead of him. But with those two off the board, I do like Dante Exum at number three. I'm not a huge fan of Jabari Parker. The defensive concerns are, are quite a bit for me. It's not even the physical deficiencies. It's not the it's not the lateral quickness. It's not the wingspan or the height, although he measured out fairly well, according to his agent who released it this past week. Well, I have a little bit of question with that because he was measured at the uh, Nike Hoop Summit last spring. And somehow, without gaining much in the form of wingspan or height, he gained three inches of standing reach. So I'm not necessarily saying somebody's intentionally misleading. I'm not saying it's even his agent that's wrong, but either what was re- released last week or what was released last year at the Nike Hoop Summit, it, it seems like there's a little bit of a discrepancy there. But I'm not even – my main concern with him isn't even his physical profile. It's his attentiveness on defense. It's his, his defensive awareness, his his positioning. His He's frankly just not engaged enough on that end of the court for me, and I, I worry about that quite a bit. And that puts a huge onus on him if he's not going to be a – good team defender then he really has to not only create offense for himself but also create offense for his teammates and right now I think I I, I had Dante Exum ahead of him I really like Dante Exum I've gotten to see a lot of his a lot of his FIBA games uh, and and some other games and I it's tough because he's so young and there's so little tape but with his ability to get in the paint
1: kick out the you know shooters um, I, I just think he has a tremendous amount of upside yeah, you bring up a lot of good points. I also, I'd forgotten about the X and Brett Brown connection. That's really interesting. And what what I find fascinating about that grouping, because I, I have those two pretty closely together, it seems like like you do a little bit, is that they're, you're doing very different things. With Javari Parker, obviously he can get better, but I think we have a, a relatively decent idea of what he'll be as a pro, depending on how his attention level on defense goes. With Exum, it's just... Figuring out what he's going to be, where he's going to go. But the thing that I find most intriguing about him is the possibility of him being able to guard, defend both guard positions. Because that's something, not like you know, like Parker, where you're saying he doesn't really have a defensive position, but the opposite, where he could conceivably defend both. Because that would be a huge asset, especially for a team like the Sixers that has so few things set. So then, if you, you know, if you want to get an off the ball guy who defends once, that's fine. If you want to get an on the ball guy who defends twos that's fine too and that versatility would be huge for a team that's so nebulous right now
0: yeah and obviously dante eggs he's going to need to put on some weight uh, he's he's still only 18 but you know he he's about 6-6 and about 196 so he he needs some strength and he needs, needs some strength bad on the positive side though he's put on about 10 10 pounds uh, over the course of last over the course of last year so there's a little bit of hope for that as he physically matures he certainly seems like he has a good work ethic a good head on his shoulders it's coming from you know obviously his father played so I think there's a lot to work with there and I, I think you know like you said that positional versatility that being six six with with you know a, a six nine and a half wingspan and eight seven standing reach along with that quickness certainly and and we talk about being able to switch on pick and rolls being able to pick up guys in transition or or just having that versatility to defend multiple positions it's definitely something that especially as we as we go into more multi ball handler sets. Pick and roll game, which has been huge in the NBA for for quite a while now, being able to switch like that is is a, a huge benefit.
1: It it definitely is. I wanted to just go more generally because I know that you're you're interested in the draft on guys that you think just generally, not in terms of when they'll be around, but guys that you think would be good fits or bad fits with the Sixers in the later part. Later part, we could say either with or you know, just in the in various parts of the draft.
0: Yeah, I think a guy like Gary Harris is actually a guy who I would like. You know, I, I think a lot of people were down on his measurements. He, he measured in like six three with shoes on, not the length you would want. And I think there's a lot of, you know, he, he was disappointing in the fact that a lot of people expected more from him and his ability to create off the dribble and really be a, a more dynamic scorer. But by the same token, three and D guys in this league just have a lot of, of value and they, they they carve out long careers. And even though he's only six foot three, I I think he's a strong defender at the at the one of the two. Uh, and I, I think with his feet set, he's a very good shooter. And I think there's value there, especially if, if the team went with a guy like Andrew Wiggins at number three or Dante Exam, a, a guy who can get in the lane. But by the same token, like I said, I, I really do think that positional versatility is something that Brett Brown and Sam Hinkey value. Uh, and certainly with, with Gary Harris, you're not going to get a whole lot of that. You know, so some of it depends on who you draft. Like a guy like Doug McDermott, I like Doug McDermott. But I, I think you just have to keep your expectations in line with him. I think if you're expecting a guy who can come in, give you 20 to 25 minutes, and be very valuable during those 20 to 25 minutes, I think you're, you're going to be very happy with him. But if you're expecting a guy to start, you know he obviously has a lot of defensive question marks as well. And I'm not sure you can really put him on the court regardless of matchup. I, I think you're going to have to be selective with matchups with him. Um, so you know, I think if you look back at the 2003 draft, one of the greatest drafts, Ever. Kyle Culver has I think the seven most most win shares. And I think sometimes we, we we especially at this part of the draft at ten late lottery, we try to go for guys who have that all star potential or at least that starter potential, even if they might not have the highest probability of reaching that potential. So if you have a draft a guy like Andrew Wiggins at at, at three, having a guy like Doug McDermott who can has that exceptionally quick release and really opens up the lane, I think that could be valuable. And I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily be thrilled if if they went That direction at ten, but I certainly wouldn't. I I wouldn't be upset either. Another guy that I really like. I I do like Nick Stauskas a lot. Again, another good shooter, but he can do a lot more with the ball in his hands. He can create for himself, create for teammates. He measured athletically really well at the combine. I like him quite a bit. Then you have a a lot of obviously other wing players: James Young from Kentucky, Rodney Hood from Duke, a a bunch, Zach Levine, who's all over the board, a bunch of guys who have very good. athletic or physical profiles especially James Young certainly has prototypical size can shoot the ball with his feet set a lot of questions on his um you know on his shot selection and just a a, a, in my estimation a really poor defender at this stage still very young though and and maybe if you interview him and he he sounds like a good kid and he, he works hard maybe there's something to work with there I'm not necessarily the biggest fan same thing with Zach Levine he looks tremendous at, at the combine it gets a little murkier when you put a basketball in his hands though i'm not necessarily the biggest fan but again if, if he's a guy who comes in and it's a shame that you don't get necessarily get to know these players a little bit better but if you if you come away really strong in his interview when he comes away and he impresses you he's, he's another guy who's an obvious obvious option because like i said there's there's whether you, you already have michael carter williams and you end up with with wiggins or Exum or whoever you end up with you're gonna need somebody to, to space the floor Outside of that, the, the main guys that I look at in the 10 range, one of the power forwards that could drop, you know, Von Lee, Randall, Aaron Gordon, even Dario Sarch, any of those drop, and I think that they're, they're someone you have to look at. Uh, certainly, if we're talking about floor spacing, Aaron Gordon's not the guy that you would want to bring up. But by the same token, he has so much defensive potential. And again, one of the things I talked about with, uh, with Noel was his versatility and his ability to pop out on a ball handler, defend a face-up four, well, Aaron Gordon, while well, he doesn't have the shot block him so well, he's, he's just as good defending the perimeter, moving his feet. Uh, just an extremely versatile defensive player with obviously a huge upside because of his athleticism. And I think once he fills out, and, and, and he's another one, I don't think he turns 19 until August, I think I want to say. So he's another one who's very young, and I think as his body fills out, he's going to be a, a, a pretty prototypical four. A little undersized, but but strong enough to defend that spot. Um, he's another guy I have a lot of interest in. And Saric, I mean... He, he's a guy who, this past past couple months overseas, he just played insane basketball and, and the versatility that he brings on the offensive side of the court. Where, where Aaron Gordon brings a lot of defensive versatility, Dario Saric brings a lot of offensive versatility. And on a team that struggled to really generate good looks in the half court, I think he's a guy who could have some value. Um, I can't see Noah Vonley falling, but if he does, he's. I mean, he he's a guy who you can take and have a very reasonable assumption that he's he, he you're going to be able to plug him in for a long time and he's going to contribute. I don't necessarily think he has the most upside at at this part of the draft, but if you give me a guy who can rebound like he can, has the body and the length to play good post defense and also can step out and hit that that mid-range or even further jump shot, you know, he he he's going to have a very long career and I don't I don't think there's a whole lot of chance that he doesn't become a valuable player. So I think I think that's mostly where I'm looking. Um there's you know another couple of of other foreign prospects, Nurkic, but I'm not I'm not necessarily sure he fits with Noel. Another guy who just, he's going to struggle to defend, I think, in, in, at the NBA level, especially on the pick and roll. And if you have a guy like him, you're going to have to try to keep him in the paint because he can't defend the perimeter, and you don't want to move Nurlands Noel out on the perimeter and lose his shot blocking unless you're pairing him with another elite shot blocker. So I don't think I'd necessarily look that way. But, you know, one of those power forwards dropping, or, you know, Doug McDermott, um, Nick Stauskas, I think that's probably the direction that I would go.
1: One thing that I think is interesting with the Sixers, and we've kind of danced around it a couple times, is we've talked about positional versatility, and the other big question with that is Michael Carter-Williams. Do you feel comfortable with him defending both guard positions? Do you think he's primarily a one? Because that has a lot to do in terms of uh, where they should go for the other guard position.
0: Yeah, I I think he's probably primarily a one. I I think it it depends a lot on matchups. I think you're probably gonna want him on the ball, using his length to, to disrupt some passing lanes. The big problem with that is he's he's just not a great pick and roll defender right now. He struggles to get through picks and he needs to really work on that and, and bulk up a little bit. I'm not sure I necessarily see him putting on a whole lot of weight. And I think that, you know, against some of the better more versatile two guards in the league, I think I think that would be an issue. But I certainly think, you know, if you pair him with a guy like Dante Eggsum or even Wiggins, I think you can get by switching A lot with him, but I think it's a lot based on matchups, too. I think primarily he's a a point guard defender.
1: Yeah, because I've I've known him, I followed him pretty closely because I went to UCLA, but I think Levine would be a really interesting fit. I'm not saying it'd be a great fit, but it would be a very interesting thing because Levine could be such a useful piece in transition because it seems like the Sixers are going to run. It seems like that's a part of their identity. And Levine is a great open court player. He's actually a far better open court player than half court player because his Half-court judgment isn't great. So it would be interesting to see that. And on the same line, it's kind of interesting to see what Stauskas could be just because he brings a lot of the things that Michael Carter-Williams doesn't offensively. And to have that in one guy and have both of them have a little bit of flexibility would be very interesting to kind of have both of them be hybrid guards in the size sense would be fascinating just to see from a basketball nerd perspective.
0: Yeah, no, I I definitely think Nick Stauskas is a, a, a definite fit. Again, a lot of it depends on what they do at three. But uh, I, I like his game quite a bit. I think he's probably a little bit underrated if you're talking about him as a late lottery prospect. Going back to Levine, conceptually, from a, a pure basketball skills standpoint, there's no question that he would be a tremendous fit. I have, I have absolutely no question about that. The question is, you know, like you said, decision-making, defense, uh, whether he's going to really make the most of that potential. But you're right, they're definitely going to want to push the ball. That's, that's definitely part of, of Brett, what Brett Brown and Sam Hinkie want to do. And there's very few in the country that can get up and down a court like Zach Levine can.
1: Are there any guys that could, that you've been, when you've been following the draft, because the Sixers obviously have an army of second-round picks, are there any guys that you think are really interesting in that realm in terms of the Sixers or anybody else? Well, I'm a, a pretty big fan of Alfred Payton.
0: I don't think he's a fit for the Sixers, obviously. But he, he's a player that, if you're just talking about pure value, if for some reason he would fall. I'm not sure. I think, I think his stock is going up right now, so I'm not sure he's going to be there. But he's a guy who I would have a lot, of, a lot of interest in just for pure value. Another guy who, and the Sixers have the 32nd pick, so they have a pretty high pick in the second round. Another guy who looks like, who's a tough gauge right now value-wise, is, is P.J. Hairston. But if, if you're talking about a guy who could potentially fall, and, and, and this is the time of year where it seems like you know, those character questions come up, and they, they tend to drag some people down. And if he gets dragged down in the second round, I think he's a tremendous value. Kyle Anderson. He's another guy who's all over the place on draft boards. It's kind of hard to get a read. I don't expect him to be there at 32. Uh, in fact, I, th- I think he could end up going closer to 20. But if he falls, you know, a lot of analytically-minded people have him rated very highly. Uh, and I have a lot of questions on Kyle Anderson, specifically on the defensive side of the ball. But, you know, that, that's a place where if, if, if you're looking at statistical projections and Sam Hinkie being of that mindset, you know, that's the name that you could hear called. You know, I think uh, there's a foreign point guard. Vasily Mich- Michik, can't pronounce it, but he's another guy who, in that range, I think is probably a little bit undervalued, and I like him a lot. And then you have some guys, you know, Giannis's brother, Finassis, uh, a guy that the Sixers took in the NBDL draft last year, and they used a lot of their picks. I think they had three guys who still had draft eligibility, and that's another instance where that's, you know, they, they now have the Delaware Sevens. They're co- completely controlled. It's a one-to-one relationship. Uh, They control the coach. They control the GM. They can see these guys work out. They can figure out how coachable they are. They can really get that kind of personal detail that that's hard to get from a a college prospect. So they took these guys with the the very specific reason being to get to know as much about them before the draft. And he's a guy who played with them all year. And he's a guy who has, you know, a lot of he's older than his his brother, but he has a lot of, of athletic potential. So I think if you're looking at a a mid-second round pick, I think that's a name that you could potentially hear called, depending on how well they liked him over the course of this last year.
1: And and I think what's really fun about the Sixers position, because they have, I believe it's five second round picks, is that If they want to combine those, they certainly can. And so if there's somebody that they like in the late first, that number 32 pick is a huge asset because some teams really like that pick even in today's world. And so to have that and then to have some other ones, and obviously they have a bunch of other picks and other drafts, that if there's somebody that they love, whoever that could be, they could move into the early 20s, I think, and get somebody if they had somebody they loved. But also they could just accumulate a ton of assets either for stashing or just to have. Yeah, I would
0: would be absolutely stunned. If they had five second-round pick rookies on their on their roster next year, whether that's taking you know a European prospect, keeping them overseas, stashing them like you said, uh, or whether that's you know combining picks, trading picks, I would not expect them to retain all the picks they have. You know they have 32, 39, 47, 52, and 54. I think are their five picks. I would bet pretty much everything I have saved that there's almost no chance that they finish the night with those five picks. So like you said, combining something with the thirty two to move up in the twenties. Whether that's trading Thaddeus Young who's who's a question mark, there were reports that he wanted to you know, he he would prefer to be traded. Go to more of a contender. He's he's right in the middle of his prime. So whether or not they use him as a trade chip on draft night, I think you know, they would want something a little more than the twenties, but he's another if they target somebody, he's another name that could come up. Uh, they certainly have a lot of assets, even just their, looking at their cap space and their ability to absorb contracts and, and get teams out of mistakes there are certainly a lot of options they have on draft night
1: yeah I was going to bring up Thaddeus Young especially when we were talking about power forwards in the earlier part whether that be Randall or Gordon or whoever is your expectation that he whether he's on the team this year or not that this will probably be his last year on the Sixers I would be surprised if he finished the 2014-2015 season on the team
0: I would guess that there's probably a better than 50-50 shot that he's traded over the summer uh, whether that's draft night, whether that's free agency, whether that's before the season. And obviously the further you get into it, the less chance there are of, of moves, big moves really happening. But I would not expect that, that, that he's young. I think I don't think it's so much the contract, because I think he has like two, mil, or two years left at right around $9 million. It's It's a pretty fair contract for what he brings. And the Sixers have so much cap space that I, I don't think they're necessarily looking to move him because they want to clear more cap space. But I think if he's a player who wants to go and and play on a contending team or at least a team that's not you know even if everything works out for the Sixers right now you're probably looking at 3 4 even 5 years until they're really contending for you know being one of the final 4 teams or getting to the finals and I think he would like a shorter window than that so if he's really adamant about and he's he, he's a great great teammate a great team guy he doesn't come out publicly with any of this so it's it's really hard to know how much of that that report you know whether or not he's backed off of that at all. How forceful he was in that request—it's hard to really know. But if he really wants to be somewhere else, and I have a, a hunch that he does, then it's—I I could see them moving him because they realize that you know they're—they're they're still quite a
1: bit of ways from, from getting to where they want to be. And that fits nicely into the question that I've asked everybody when I've done this feature on the on the podcast is the idea of the timetable of contention. And that's obviously it's really hard for the Sixers because there are so few pieces that we're sure are locked in. But if you had to get a feel for it, how far do you think they are from that peak? Is it, you know, like three to four years or something like that? Well, I, th-
0: I think if you look at uh, teams that have been in similar situations to where they are, even if you look at a team that hit on pretty much everything that they did in Oklahoma City Thunder they still lost you know very big for for Kevin Durant's first 3 years and that's while drafting you know Ibaka and Harden and Russell Westbrook I mean they they literally hit on everything that they needed to and it still took quite a bit of time and with the exception of maybe Derrick Rose in Chicago all of these teams that are are really starting from scratch because I think Chicago was like a 33 win team or something around there. They weren't as far back as teams like the Sixers or the Thunder or, well, I, I guess they're the, the Supersonics back then, but they, they're not as far back as, as the Sixers are. So I think realistically, I think you can start looking. If they hit on this draft, and whether that be, you know, Wiggins or Exum or Embiid, Falls, or Parker, if they hit on this draft, then I think you can start seeing real progress. Maybe three years from now. And by real progress, I mean, 45 wins and, and threatening in the first round. And then, in, in, like I said, in four to five years, that's when you really start to, uh, you know, you, you really start to become a, a legitimate contender in, you know, the Eastern Conference. I, th- I think there's still quite a bit of time before you're really going to see the fruit of of this rebuild.
1: I I agree with you. I think that's a fairer and reason timeline. The other thing that I think people sleep on in terms of the value of that big rebuild is that it allows you to accumulate a lot of assets in the time that you're not getting there so that when you so that when you explode out of it, you have more let's say you have more fuel because you're not just going from, you know, getting let's say they get lottery picks this year to being, you know, in that late lottery kind of like what happened to Cleveland a little bit, except that they ended up jumping into the number 1 pick anyway but you so they're going to get you know let's say this year they'll get some big assets next year they'll probably get some too and then maybe even the year after that and then if everybody's developing on time then you're ready to go but you still have this kind of this cache of guys that could still develop into something more which is actually what Oklahoma City used it's just that they ended up you know trading some of those pieces away for various reasons but it's a very interesting situation for a young team to be in to have as many assets as they're going to have before they get big.
0: Yeah, no, and, and certainly and it it's it's tough because you don't want to you know, you you look at, at a team like Cleveland, like you said, and they they certainly hit on Kyrie Irving, but there's always reports on how happy he is there, how much he wants to be there long term. So there there's certainly a timetable where you can't keep going the route that that Sam Hankey and, and the Sixers have gone and not really even making an attempt to fill out a competitive roster. But by the same token, I mean you're not tough to lure a legitimate you're not gonna lure LeBron James here. The, the NBA has done a tremendous job of removing money as really the deciding factor. And that that's a weird thing to say, but with you know, when you cap max contracts, you know you, you say superstars can only earn thirty percent of the basketball related income or thirty five depending on their years in service. Well, there are going to be multiple teams that are going to be able to offer that, and the Sixers just don't have anything to separate themselves, even if they have 30 million dollars in cap space. So it's going to be hard to lure, you know, a player that would really escalate that rebuild. So you're you're looking at second, third tier free agents, and maybe they find one who they think can, especially once you start getting the superstars in place, and and you know you draft Andrew Wiggins and and he plays really well this year, and maybe he. he you're confident that he's going to be a guy to build around. Then you can go into next off season and try to find those pieces in free agency. But this coming year in free agency, with Nerlens Noel not playing, with I mean, Mike Carter Williams, one rookie of the year, but you know, I, I don't think that he's necessarily a sure thing to be a a franchise cornerstone and a a draft pick who, while has a lot of potential, I think there's going to be questions on whoever they draft. So I think they're going to really want more data about these guys, about Noel, about Michael Carter-Williams, about whoever they pick at 3 and 10, before they really go out and commit long-term to guys in free agency. And I think if maybe free agency were an easier method to build teams around, uh, and, and like I said, there's a lot of NBA rule changes that kind of prevent that, but if it were easy, that might ex- you might be able to accelerate that rebuild. But right now, I think uh, I, I think Sam Hankey's going to be really quiet in free agency again this year and wait until next offseason when he knows a little bit more about these young pieces he has And that's when you might see that big jump, that jump from 25, 27 wins up to maybe 500 and, you know, the arrow arrow pointing towards contention.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The other thing I was thinking you were talking about, you know, keeping quiet this year and then doing next year is that the model for that might be something similar to what Al Jefferson did with Charlotte, that you get a guy who's talented and you sign him to a shorter term contract so that when you have to sign the other guys to extensions, you're not going to be hamstrung. But the question there is, would... Hinky and everybody else be willing to basically, you know, make their draft pick worse and everything like that to get the experience winning, and I think that's a decision they're going to need to make. But there might be a guy like that, a guy who's, you know, maybe not an all-star but a good player, who they could sign to a two or three-year deal to basically bridge the gap before the other guys get good enough to make it. And that's going to be a hard decision for them. But I think that if they wanted to go that route, I think those guys are always available.
0: Yeah, and I I mean it's a tough decision because I think conceptually. You look at it and you go, well, I want, I want the higher draft pick because that's a guy who who's going to have more potential. Um, you know, if you give me the option next year of winning 33 games and having the 10th pick, or winning 24 games and having the fourth pick, it's, it's it seems pretty cut and dry. I mean, there's there's between the odds of moving up to the draft and, and maybe getting a guy like Julio Okoro who could really really be a franchise building block. But by the same token, these are human beings. They have emotions. They have goals in their career, and eventually, at some point, you have to. I mean, it's one thing about re-signing them when they come off their rookie contracts, because since they're restricted, uh, since there's no one else that can offer them more money, more years, more raises, you have a pretty good chance of re-signing them. But the question is their happiness. Are you going to be worried about whether Kyrie Irving, for example, is going to be trying to get out of there? Whether he's going to try to force his hand? You know, like I said, these are human beings. They're these are people who have goals and it's it's they're not always on your timeline so while it might make sense from an asset standpoint to try to maximize that pick next year you kind of want to show some progress even if that's only going from 19 wins to 25 wins but while doing it with you know players that look like they're on the cusp of of more maybe that's enough and maybe that maybe that keeps guys like Michael Carter Williams and New Noel and, and all of them happy but you, it's tough to gauge, especially from the outside, when we don't get a chance to talk to these players or, 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 you know, really get to know their feelings or or how they're okay with this process. It's it's a tough position to be in.
1: It is, and as somebody who covers the Golden State Warriors, I I see that because my first year full time covering the team was Stephen Curry's first year, and we were talking at one point late in his rookie year when the Warriors were absolutely horrible, and he said he just turned to me and he said. Man, I've lost as many games this year as lost. i lost. I can't remember if it was his whole time at Davidson or his last two years at Davidson. And it was wearing on him. But now you see that that doesn't affect him anymore. So winning does cure it, but it takes a while. And, yep. you know, that, that the sting of that, it, it lingers. And these guys, you know, most of them, Carter Williams is in this group as well. A lot of them won a lot in college, and they probably won a lot in high school. So losing is something that isn't fun for anybody, especially if you're a competitor. But – Once you start winning and you have the hope that comes from that, if you think that tomorrow is going to be better than today, then that takes a lot of the edge off it once you have that confidence. And I think that's the big question with the Sixers is, can you instill whoever is going to stay with the idea that we're on our way? And as long as they're like that and you don't blow a tire on that, I think you'll be all right but as you said, some improvement, and also it's not only some improvement, but seeing like, let's say he sees Nerlens Noel make some great blocks and goes, okay, you know, two years from now, he's going to be amazing. That can work too. You know, you can do it that way. It doesn't even have to be wins and losses, but they have to have something, something for those guys to look at and say, okay, this is a situation that will be better than it is now.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And it, it's, you know, we get to sit here behind our computers. You know, I, I know you said you covered the Warriors. I I have – press passes for the Sixers, but by and large we get to live in this fairy tale world where we don't have to worry about the human element, and it's, even looking at something like the Sixers traded Andre Iguodala, they traded Drew Holiday, if they would go in, let's say, and they would convince themselves that uh, Dante Exum is a better long-term prospect than Michael Carter-Williams, and you find, let's say, the Orlando Magic, who will trade you the fourth pick for, that, for, for Michael Carter-Williams. Well, at some point, you've traded away your best player three years in a row, and it, it's kind of hard to convince players that you know, There's some loyalty there and and, and and they're not going to be constantly shuffling pieces and they're trying to build something when three years in a row you've traded your, your best player. So again, even if you might have Dante Exum rated higher or even significantly higher and, and he'd be better without Michael Carter-Williams there and you think maybe building around Andrew Wiggins and Dante Exum is better than building around Michael Carter-Williams and Dante Exum. It's sometimes not always cut and dry whether or not you make that move, and I think you probably do make that move because if, if Wiggins and Noel and, and Exum start showing something, then that, that sentimentality will turn around real quickly. But if you miss on any of these prospects, it just kind of compounds that, and you, 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 it's a tough act to be in because you they're at a situation where I think everyone in Philadelphia was extremely extremely supportive of what they did. Uh, we've we've kind of been in that middle ground in that 35 to 44 win team for what seems like outside of that Eddie Jordan year when they ended up with the second pick in the draft, they've been in that, that mid-range at no man's land for forever. So I think as fans, we all looked at this and we said, great. It's a team that has a vision. They have a plan. They're willing to be bad. The owners are willing to foot the bill. There's are no pressure to win now and fill seats. And they're very honest and open about what they're doing. And uh, it kind of ruffled some feathers in the national media. But I think everybody in Philadelphia appreciated that. But by the same token, you just wonder how long you're going to have that backing both from fans and from players on the team. If you miss on say Andrew Wiggins and he doesn't turn into what you think he's going to be, or if Michael Carter Williams regresses or, or teams focus on him and, and take away some of his strengths or doesn't make growth in his jump shot and continues to be as inefficient as he is. They're on a kind of a slippery slope where one major miss and it, all that
1: support that they're getting is, is it's questionable how long they can have it. And the human element is something that, that gets lost in the shuffle a lot. And and as you mentioned, you know, even if you have the ability to retain a player because you have the right to match, like let's say the, what the now Pelicans did with Eric Gordon, that doesn't guarantee that the guy's going to be happy and motivated and that everything's going to work out. So you have to deal with that. But at the same time, you know, they are young guys. They, are, they all have the ability to rebound and to get over being – disappointed. So you have to balance all of that. And also, I think, as you mentioned, the the difference, I think, with the Sixers compared to a lot of young teams, and I would actually include the Cavs in this as a team that did it the wrong way, is an understanding of where they are in the process. And that's a really nice thing in some ways, because I think the players know, you know, the, the players know that they're not great. And so at least they know that management's not blowing smoke. And I think that while that's important for the fans, I think in some ways, it's more important for the players, because what that means is that, while you're not where you want to be, at least everybody knows it, and that's a step up from let's say in this part of Cleveland where they're like, oh, we're a playoff team, and then they get the first pick in the draft. I mean, obviously they were better than that, but I think that that can buy you a little bit of leeway. But obviously, as you said, you know, if they make more moves, it just keeps cutting away the safety net, so that if they fall, that somebody's going to catch them and be okay with it.
0: Yeah, no, I I think you know I appreciate the honesty. I think uh, I think you're right. A lot of times, expectations. I mean, you look at these guys that you've resigned, like Cleveland, really kind of directing your front office, maybe asking you to become contenders earlier in the process than than you want to be. And, and Sam Hinkie's been very adamant that, you know, he's he's not going to take shortcuts, and he's he's not going to go out and sign a guy just to, you know, appease where he should be in the process. But you know, it's it's sometimes tough to convince a player. An established player that you know we may we may need be bad now, but when we get the third pick in the draft, we're we're going to hit on him and he's going to turn stuff around. Especially if it's a player who might you know play the same position that you do. And it's it's I'm not sure you're going to necessarily lure players based on the draft picks you have coming up. But I mean the, the great thing about the Sixers and the spot that they're in, oh they have so many avenues. Even if they miss on the third pick, they have the tenth pick. They have all those second round picks. They have all that cap space. They have they have four lottery picks in the last two years. So I think Sam Hankey's doing a good job of giving himself options and realizing that as good as third pick in the draft is, you know, there's still a miss rate there and there's still the draft is almost like you have to buy as many tickets as you can because there's just not there's no sure thing. Um so I think the amount of options that they're giving themselves is great. It's a smart way to do it. You know, we, we go back to having to show show progress and show
1: movement. One quick thing I I was thinking about it you mentioned it earlier has there been any word in terms of Kazemi and Alder or and or Aldemir in terms of whether they're going to play in the summer league or possibly be on the team next year? I'm pretty sure I think they're both going to be overseas next year.
0: Aldemir I believe just signed a 3-year contract uh with his his club overseas. So I think it I think he's he, he's certainly going to be over there next year and it's you know I'm not sure what the buyout situation is for for the years after that. But I'm not sure if either of them are going to be over here for the summer league right now. But that's a good question, particularly with Kazemi. Um, I think he maybe wanted, I think he was a little more motivated to be here last year. So I'm not sure if he's going to be over there as long-term, but that that's a good question. I, I would say Aldemir is definitely not, but Kazemi is up in the air and, and we'll find that out.
1: Well, thanks. Uh, are there any other Sixers topics that you wanted, that you thought of that you want to share with the listeners?
0: Uh, well, I certainly think we hit, hit on pretty much most of them. I mean, obviously the, the big thing coming up is the draft. And it's kind of tough because they're so – the Sixers are very tight-lipped about the draft. There's no media availability for any of the workouts. Uh, Most of the time when you find out about the workouts, you find out from players' Twitters. Uh, They're very very secretive at this time of year. So it's tough to really get a gauge on which way they're going and which way they're leaning. But certainly this draft, more so than than free agency, because like I said, I think they're going to be fairly quiet in free agency. But this draft is one that they absolutely have to hit on. And there's you know there's there's a lot of really good prospects. there's four prospects that I really like in this draft, and there's eight of them that I think are are really good and there's just a lot of depth and I think if there's any bit of luck they get either on the third pick or the tenth pick, and they can they can really hit a home run here. So I think the draft is first and foremost on everyone's mind uh and then after that, we see where we go after that. But I think it's an exciting time to be a sixers fan um certainly, like I said, we were in in that middle ground for so long that bottoming out in a weird way is sort of exciting because we get you know we get that chance to try to get that franchise level player in the draft try to develop him you know Brett Brown and it's hard to really gauge Brett Brown based on last year's performance because he, he really didn't have an NBA roster but he certainly from what I saw he's, he's very hands-on in developing these young kids he's very passionate about developing young these young kids so to be able to get another 18- or 19-year-old with the athletic potential of Andrew Wiggins or Joel Embiid or Dante exum It's an exciting time to be a Sixers fan, and and you just hope that they put in their work, they hit a home run on it, and in in three to five years, we see really the the fruits of the labor.
1: Uh, Agreed on all counts. It's great to hear that kind of optimism. I think it's completely warranted, and it could be even stronger depending on how the draft turns out. Thanks so much for taking time. It was a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Derek Bonder for taking the time to come on. You can read him at Liberty Ballers and Draft Express. I find the Sixers a particularly fascinating team because of the situation they're in, and I also love that they make no bones about where they are and that it's going to take a little while, and I respect that. There are a lot of teams out there, and we talked about this on the podcast, that rush rush the process and think that they're further along than they are, and that can lead to some really negative consequences. And while, of course, the Sixers can get there, They at least have a good head on their shoulders, and I really like Sam Hankey. I think he's done a good job so far, and we'll see where it goes from here. I hope you enjoyed this version of The Eliminated. If you liked it, you can check out many of the other ones we've done. I'm trying to hit as many teams as possible before the draft, and then I'll do another little batch between the draft and July 1st, and then mostly move into recaps and everything like that. If there's a team that has not been covered yet, and you have a guest in mind, you can let me know over email. That's Daniel, D-A-N-I-E-L. Dot LaRue at realgm.com or you can send it to me on Twitter at Danny LaRue D-A-N-N-Y L-E-R-O-U-X or you can send me comments, criticism, feedback of any sort on the podcast. It's the best way for this to get better. I appreciate it and I read everything and I respond to almost everything. So it is something that if you feel strongly in any direction I appreciate the input. So hope you enjoyed it and again any input as well is greatly appreciated i will be continuing this and hopefully having some more general guests as well so thank you take care and make it a great day